Hello, and welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Jana, your host for this episode, filling in for Barb. And with me today are Devin. Hi. Josie. Hello. And Denise. Hello. To discuss our latest pick, Yellowbird, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country by Sierra Crane Murdoch. And spoiler alert, today we'll be discussing Yellowbird in its entirety, which means there will be spoilers in the podcast. If you haven't finished reading it yet, you might want to come back to this episode when you've done so. And a little info about the author. Sierra Crane Murdoch, a journalist based in the American West, has written for Harper's, This American Life, The Atlantic, The New Yorker Online, VQR, and High Country News. She has held fellowships from Middlebury College and from the Investigative Reporting Program at the University of California, Berkeley. She is a McDowell Fellow. She reported on the oil boom in North Dakota and its impact on the Mandan Hidatsa Arikra Nation since 2011, which led to the publication of her first book, Yellowbird. Yellowbird was named one of the best books of 2020 by the New York Times, NPR, Amazon, and Publishers Weekly. Part true crime, part social criticism, Yellowbird chronicles a murder on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in North Dakota, tracing the steps of an Arikra woman, Lissa Yellowbird, as she searches for a young white oil worker who went missing from the reservation. And let's start with our overall ratings and impressions of Yellowbird, and a little discussion around the genre of true crime. I'll go first. I've never really read true crime before, full disclosure, but this book felt different to me than what I had imagined this genre would be like, which I imagined it would be kind of gory and sensational, and it wasn't like that at all. Murdoch writes like a nature writer with fresh and eloquent descriptions of the northern prairie while connecting that landscape firmly to the tragedy that unfolded there. I admire all the research she did for this work into the past in order to help the reader truly understand the present in all its complexity. Murdoch is a master at not only telling the gripping story of a missing person, but also contextualizing his disappearance as a symptom of a larger societal problem. I give it five stars. Josie, how about you? Um, so I have enjoyed my share of true crime books. Um, and while this was in the true crime Dewey section of the library, to me, it was very different than the others that I've read. Um, I too thought Murdoch wrote beautifully um, of the land and the booms and busts it endured during the oil boom and the about the greed that destroys communities. Uh, Lissa was a mesmerizing protagonist, I thought, and her obsession with this crime reminded me so much of uh, Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, and that's one of the best true crime books that I've read. Um, and I actually found the search and investigation into Casey's disappearance um, to be the weakest part of the book, actually. That was where my attention sort of dragged. There were lots of names and relationships that I found somewhat hard to track. Uh, and I found the sort of written out phone conversation between Lissa and Sarah to be very tedious. I just, I mean, I honestly kind of just scanned that. <laughs> um, for that reason, um, I give it four and a half stars. You know, there were parts of that book that was gorgeous. And I loved everything that involved Lissa and the tribe. Um, but the investigation part dragged for me. All right. Thanks, Josie. And how about you, Denise? 
Well, I haven't read many true crime books, and honestly, part of that is that I'm maybe more sensitive to certain violence. Um, maybe I'm just a wimp, <laughs> but uh, most of the true crime I've read has been more about art heists and that type of thing. Um, I felt like this one was quite intricate, and it has the shifts in perspective uh, from the author talking about Lissa's personal experiences um, to the historical and cultural information segments to Murdoch's own documentation of her journey through the story. Um, I felt it was really woven in the sense that the book moves between the description and the dialogue in ways that bring the reader into the moments in time, the, those snapshots, those little postcards. And I love that. Um, while it keeps the story moving and it keeps the reader engaged at the same time. Um, it's a beautifully complex read. It has characters ranging from um, main character, uh, who's got a lot going on in her own life, um, to the actual missing man, the mystery part of it, the crime, um, to the author herself, and then all of the um, fascinating characters that uh, are around that, different tribal people, um, and people from the oil companies. I would give it four and a half stars for the intricacy, the continued continuity of writing. And um, it's an easy but not easy read. Mm -hmm. And Devin, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to pretty much echo what um, you all have said. I am a fan of true crime. And the gorier the better, in my opinion. But um, like you said, Janet, this, this is not gory at all. Um, and also, like you guys have echoed, it seems to encompass so much more than just that one genre of true crime. Um, it's very complex with multiple storylines that do get a bit confusing at times, um, especially since there's so many different people to keep track of. I listened to this book using the Libby app, and it is narrated by the author, who has a beautiful voice and did a beautiful job. I really enjoyed this story because it opened up a whole different world to me, and I actually sought out additional reading on the history of the MHA nation, um, which I recommend the readers do. Uh, I really enjoyed the author's style of writing. It really held my interest throughout, um, although at times I felt a little overwhelmed with the amount of detail she provided. My absolute favorite thing about this book, though, is that it did introduce me to a subject that I hadn't known much about before. So for that reason, I'm going to give it four and a half stars. And Devin, speaking of learning more about the relationship um, between the Mandan Hidatsa and Arikra Nation and the U.S. government, um, that is really uh, the setting for this story. And Denise, do you want to give us a little more background on that? Sure. Um, so Sierra Crane Murdoch really infuses the storyline um, the storyline of the investigation into Casey's disappearance. Um, with a lot of historical document quotes, a lot of tribal accounts of events, uh, particularly, I mean, these specific tribes, um, with events such as the building of the dam on the Missouri River and the subsequent flooding of the ancestral tribal lands. So, you know, in reality, they're not as directly connected as events, but they are in the same place and time. And if you don't know the background, you don't know what has happened there, you can't fully understand what people are feeling and what some of the the more subtle motives might be. Um, the descriptions in the beginning of the book of the tribes moving their entire lives from this valley up, you know, up the 
um, to the top of the the hill. It's moving. It's heartbreaking. You know, they dug up some of their dead. They moved some of their buildings, but not everything. And so imagine, you know, maybe you moved your house, but maybe you didn't move the church, or maybe you weren't able to dig up all of your relatives and move their graves or something like that. And um, having that, that kind of fractured um, events, those things that leave you feeling not quite um, having closure it, 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 it's a reoccurring issue. It resonates with the people that still remember those things happening in the book. It's, it, it is at that point the elders because um, the flooding of that plain of the Missouri River um, happened in mid-century uh, America. So it's been a while. But it's this along with so many other heartbreaking uh, Events like broken treaties, broken promises over decades and even centuries in our country's history. We get a sense that the people of the MHA nation, they're quite used to being taken advantage of. They And, and they even expect it to, to some degree with dealing with white people. Um, it's not the first time, that's not the first incident that happened to them. But part of the book did say that it was really seen as the most significant in that in the, those tribes' history. Um, and and then you have the technological advances in the ground oil extraction or, and fracking that um, brings both opportunity for economic relief and independence, but as well as it brings the old cycle of losing out to outsiders coming just to take what they can. It's another reality for them just a few decades after this whole flooding. So it's we come in, we take. We come in, we take. And when we're done, we just leave and we leave the fallout, you know, for you to deal with. There's a, a quote that I really, um, that I really thought was poignant. And um, the author's referring to the flooding of the original tribal lands and the resolution made between the U.S. government and the three affiliated tribes. And in it, Murdoch writes, the white man thought they were going to put us on the badlands where nothing would grow, Hall told me. Do you think they would have put us here if they had known? Referring to the oil in their current land. So you know, they understand that, that they're going to be placed where there's nothing for, that the white man cares about. And once they find that there is something, you know, well, here they come again. It's historical, but it, it shapes the dynamic of the events in the book, the, the, whether it's individual lives or the tribe as a group. Yeah, I agree. It's always hard reading about how terrible the U.S. has treated its indigenous people, but the author including that history really added to the story for me. It was the main relationship of the story between the U.S. government and the tribes. It was like this dark cloud that hung over the other terrible part of the story, which was the murder, the murders um, of the two men. Uh, something shocking that really stood out to me was, and this was in 1851, that um, the tribe's territorial lands were an area of more than 12 million acres. And I looked it up and it's currently only 500,000. So that's a huge decrease. Then this big oil boom happens and you've got wealth that is evenly distri unevenly distributed. Um, tribal funds are mismanaged. Population increases from oil workers coming in, which brought drugs, crime, and violence to the reservation. In the author's note, she calls the reservation a microcosm of America and that, in quotes, the tribe's dependency on the U.S. has been manufactured and reinforced by more than a century of federal policies, unquote. It's definitely a difficult relationship for the tribes to have to manage. Yes. And, you know, in addition to um, the exploitation that was going on, uh, you also get a sense 
from reading this book about the um, cultural um, eradication that the whites were employing um, when they encountered the indigenous um, folks in North Dakota. Um, it's really interesting uh, that one thing that the white settlers did and what the government did to change the way that the natives used the land um, and how they they governed and how they farmed was to um, give them land allotments so that they were um, no longer viewing their land as a communal resource, but it it was replacing communalism with individualism. So it gets at the very heart of how you view your land, how you govern your people, um, and relationships, uh, as well as how do we support ourselves. The land that they were moved to was dry and barren, so they were relying on government subsidies, food subsidies. And I was watching a documentary last night about uh, fry bread, which is a food that we often associate uh, you know, with uh, indigenous peoples, but fry bread only goes back about a hundred years. Um, and it goes back to the government food allotments, the, the kind of food that white people, um, were eating because it could travel, you know, like flour, baking powder and that kind of thing. Um, oil, those things are shelf stable and it wasn't fresh food. And, and those things have, have sadly, um, brought diabetes and brought, um, obesity and all of those diseases that come with that, and that wasn't their native food, and not you know not not at all. Um, so that was another unfortunate side effect. But um, but just speaking of you know the tragedy of not only the exploitation but also the cultural eradication, the attempted eradication um, of an entire culture. It just. It's summed up very well in a quote, um, which was uh, from the U.S. government, I think from an official at the time, who said, kill the Indian and save the man. Um, and, you know, how did how did that idea function, Devin? Yeah, um, another difficult thing to read about. And um, this is a well-documented strategy that the U.S. government carried out. Um, this was a way to, you know, assimilate the Native people into European society. Um History shows us that Native children were forced to wear uniforms and carry wooden guns. They were given Christian names and in, in some cases lost their original names completely because the government agents were careless in keeping records and they would just assign names randomly. Many children ran away from these schools because the environment, the food, the clothing, the language, um, attitudes of school, school personnel were unfamiliar to them and often cruel. They were caught if they ran away, they were punished, they were returned, they were not allowed to speak their own native languages, and if they did, they were severely punished for that. Um, families who did not send their children to school were um, denied their food rations that you were talking about. Um, to spread the uh, Christianity, those who were caught practicing non-Christian ceremonies were jailed and then had their hair cut off. So you're right, they came in, and I say they, we came in, the U.S. government came in, we took their lands, we took their physical resources, and then once that was taken away, um, we took away their cultural resources. You know, they weren't allowed to be who they had been for millennia um, because we had a different way of life and we wanted their land, and it was easier to just kind of wipe them out 
so we could steal from them. Basically, it's the same thing that we did to, um, you know, African Americans. Mm -hmm. And um, it goes so much deeper, even than that, to a really um, dark place where, um, you know, Murdoch is writing about Lissa living outside of the reservation for as a child for a while, and that she was um, chased home by boys, followed home, and they were yelling names at her. You know, her name, her last name, the family name is Yellow Bird, but they would call her Yellow Turd and Yellow Piss and Squaw. Um, and that Murdoch writes that the more that Lissa heard these things, the more she believed they were true. And that is really the tragedy of internalizing the racism um, when you're confronted with that. Um, your own culture kind of fades away or becomes hateful to you. Um, yeah, I um, I found the way that people talked about the reservation throughout this book. Um, you know, they they go live somewhere else, um, and maybe they didn't live in the reservation. You know, but they they would come back for powwows, for dances, um, to vote for for the tribal council, and just how much that felt like home to them, even if it wasn't where they lived. Um, they were able to, it just, it just was the place where they belonged. And I, I loved that. Yeah. Um, it really is interesting. Cause like they said, even, even people who, um, weren't necessarily born on the reservation, you know, kids who grew up in the city still came back, whether they were, you know, visiting a grandparent for the summer, or like you said, coming back for powwows, they, st- and they're, they talked about some, she talked about some of Lissa's kids still feeling like it was their home, even though some had lived there for a little while, but some had never actually lived there. When I was in high school, we, um, a group of us took a trip to the Navajo reservation in the Four Corners, and um, that was so incredibly eye-opening. This was a trip that had happened two previous years with groups of high school students, and um, they knew that the that this group was coming, and they were really excited, and um, they helped out with some different things, and it was just kind of a learning trip. And there was a miscommunication the year we went, so a lot of the people didn't actually know we were coming, and that's different. So my friends before me came back and said it was great and it was really fun and they taught us all these things and when we went there were there were a lot of looks like why are you here and it was fascinating and if you didn't know this history if you didn't know what people had been through you could kind of be a little snarky but it's it's that wariness it's that are you what are you going to do what is your intent here once you know they the the miscommunications were resolved and things it was much better but the experience was amazing but even you know going into the the little store there the grocery store you know people were looking side-eyed you know and still wondering even though we were very friendly and very kind I was able to really understand a little bit better why um, but then there was also, there was one um, young lady who was a couple years younger than us that taught us how to make fry bread. <laughs> we were terrible at it, and she was amazing. I, I, I can't say I had any reason to blame them for any way that they didn't accept us. You know, what, what, what did we have to bring that they needed? You know, nothing. So 
um, I was grateful for the experience so that I could understand a little better. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's easy to see after reading this book how um, indigenous peoples would feel suspicious of outsiders with the long legacy of colonization. And the oil boom was was no different, right? Josie, do you want to talk a little bit about the oil boom and, and how um, that was seen by some as a continuation of colonization? They they were on the, the back and oil field, um, and it kind of it was a huge part of it was on the reservation. Tex Hall, who was um, a chairman of the tribe for quite a, quite a while, at first saw this as a way, he called it sovereignty by the barrel, a way to make their own money um, so they wouldn't have to rely on subsidies from the government. Um, but while it did give some money to people, um, and it did, did give the tribe some money, you know, it, it revealed the disparities that were already there. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really more of the same with regards to exploitation, right? Because um, of the kind of underhanded practices of the oil industry, let's just say. Um, there is a great quote in the book um, by the tribe's tax collector who was interviewed with Murdoch. And he said, it's a David and Goliath situation. When you're worried about how you're going to pay your electric bill or you can't buy your kids school clothes or you're on a fixed income and you're way below poverty level and somebody throws $30,000 at you and you don't understand that it's worth $300,000, you have just made a huge error. That's what happened to our people. The oil companies have dictated this process. It's not their first rodeo. Absolutely. Yeah. And and. From studying poverty, it's it's just a your time is different. You don't look ahead. Um, you are focused on, you know, today. And you know, in it's interesting because in other places where the fracking was booming, the oil and gas companies um, were employing the same techniques with landowners. Like this in this time frame, this was happening in lots of places across the country. It's like we got this new technology. Where can we apply this? I lived in rural Colorado for a while, and um, it was during this time, and uh, I was working in a library there. They, it was like just like they described them arriving. The, the um, people from the companies trying to get the land leases just arrived in droves to a town of a few hundred people, and it was this frantic because there were multiple companies and they're all trying to you know, get the leases secured and, and get it all finagled and everything. And there were conversations, you know, not people didn't necessarily, you know, brag about what they'd gotten, but there were conversations comparing, well, you know, I heard so-and-so got this much for their lease and I heard so-and-so got that much. And there was a disparity. Um, and there was a, a similar type of, um, a lot of the same tactics, a lot of the same, um, mindsets that came in we're coming in to get and then we're going to leave um we're kind of coming in to take over i mean in some senses they they took over the library <laughs> there there was no chair for anyone else to sit in and they would spread out all day long yeah and this wasn't this wasn't a community of native peoples you know of, of a, um, an indigenous tribe but it was still those same kind of of tactics and i thought 
later, I mean, I was thinking about it in the context of this book and in this situation, um, man, you know, if you are used to this, you know, you've experienced this kind of thing repeatedly and now um, this is what's coming. There's sort of this promise of something good, but some, what's good for you might be amazing for someone else. So just so much, so complicated and how to wrap your head around that. What really upset me, though, too, you know, you would ex- I, I expected um, the oil men to come in and, and, you know, they had their their profit top of mind. Um, but then the, the tribal council in Tex Hall, the people who were supposed to take care of their people and their tribe, didn't take care of them either. And, and, you know, Lissa says that, that that was almost, that was worse, that you did it to your own people. Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting, uh, part of the book where she said, you know, as long as some of these folks had a new car, they were willing to kind of turn a blind eye to what was going on there. And if you think about um, the carcinogenic chemicals that some of these family members were handling out there, as long as, you know, you had the promise of fast and, and quick wealth, you could look away, right? And that was, that is a big uh, and troubling part of this story. And Christopher Clark went missing while working in this environment in the oil fields uh, and Murdoch spends a lot of time writing about this work and how unsafe it is and how unregulated it is. And sure enough, um, North Dakota became the most dangerous state to labor in in 2012. And it still is today. I just looked it up um, the other day. And um, that is largely because of the oil industry. The two main industries in North Dakota are agriculture and the oil industry. Uh, Josie, do you want to give us a little more background on the um, oil fields there? So, so the oil, you know, it, it brings in some money, um, but it also brings in more people and which brings in, there's more cars on the roads. There's more accidents. Um, the, the roads are destroyed because of the heavy trucks. There's congestion. Um, there's obviously environmental impacts that we probably haven't even started to see yet. And, and tons of drugs, tons and tons of drugs. And this is a big part of this story. Um, James, you know, they were selling, selling drugs on the side, Oxycontin. And one of the horrible things, and I, I knew some of this from watching Longmire, um, <laughs> but tribal police, um, they don't have jurisdiction over non-tribal members. Um, I think the only thing that they can do is pull them over for, for speeding. Um, but uh, the tribal police said that, quote, crimes committed by non-Indians on Fort Berthold were a low priority for the, the deputies and the sheriffs, and they were already really overworked um, by the oil boom outside the reservation borders, end quote. So missing people, domestic violence, um, murder, crime, it, it was rampant because the tribal police couldn't really do anything, and the non-tribal police didn't really care. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, the, the oil boom, like you said, also brought pollution, um, you know, busted pipelines, spilled oil and fracking chemicals everywhere. I was reading um, 2014, a broken pipe leaked a million gallons of salt water, which threatened to you know, you know, completely contaminate their drinking water. Toxic gases leaked from drilling sites. I mean, it was just a hellhole. 
you know, locals complained of nosebleeds and asthma. You know, like you said, violence was another risk. Um, so these oil and gas workers would come in and they'd set up these man camps, basically, because um, there was nothing to do. You know, you worked, you know, 12, 14 hours a day on your oil rig and then you'd be in this little bitty town. And, Tons of money. <laughs> yeah, tons of money. North Dakota, you know, there's nothing to do. So what do you do when you're bored? You get into trouble. You know, there is meth and heroin and definitely, like you said, a rise in murders, assaults and human trafficking. And also statistics show that tribal people, you know, during this time are two and a half times as likely as whites to be the victims of these crimes. Um, and then you've got the police force that are short staffed. You know, they're losing officers to higher paying jobs in the oil fields. You know, we don't blame them for that. Um you know, there's only one substance abuse treatment center. And I looked this up. So this is current information. I don't think this is in the book, but this was on um, MHA Nation website and some other, some other governmental sites. Um, so, yeah, they don't have they have all this money that's being filtered into just a few hands. And the reservation and the tribal people are not getting what they need. This money was supposed to be for, you know, medical services and education and substance abuse services and staff the tribal police. And it just didn't happen. So it's it's not it's not a good situation for them. Mm -mm. Not at all. In so many ways. It's not just, you know, single faceted. It's just so complex. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine keeping mm -hmm. sanity and not getting into mm -hmm. that personally. You know, we can't say that we wouldn't in the same situation. So do you all feel that, um, you know, the, the gaps in justice and the cases going unsolved was the driving factor for Lissa Yellowbird to become interested in the case of um, Christopher Clark Casey, who did go missing during that time, as well as others. Uh, she, she has um, really, you know, a long list of uh, missing person cases that she's tracking and that she has been working on over time. Um, or was there something else that drew Lissa to this work? I'll just, I'll jump in here. Um, early on in the book, um, Sha is it Shauna is her daughter? Yeah. Um, she says that this is just another form of addiction for her mother. And Lissa had a long history of addiction. And she becomes, she becomes obsessed. I, she's an obsessive personality. Um, early in the book, there's a, there's a quote that I think just is, kind of a fascinating way to talk about obsession as a person who deals with this in my life. Um, uh, her mother called it giving weight to weightless things. And um, not that a missing man is a weightless thing, but Lissa just throws herself into it. Lissa started uh, the Sonish Scouts of North Dakota, highlight the missing people um, in Indian country, and um, it also helps coordinate searches. And I think this becomes her calling. You know, there's a really good article in High Country News, not by Murdoch, but uh, it talks about her. Um, and we'll add it in the notes, I think. But um, uh, she, Lissa, is part of a growing community of mostly female amateur sleuths and activists who say cases of missing indigenous men and women are routinely underprioritized and underinvestigated by authorities. So beyond it being an obsession and an addiction, which is what I thought it was at first, I think it was just it's she found her purpose. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that um, I found in chapter eight, um, when she writes that letter to Shauna, she actually says specifically, because they're having, you know, it was basically an argument just like that. It was one of those 
arguments with their kids or or discussions that they'd had about why is this missing man that you don't even know more important than us and um she says in the letter to her daughter the way i look for casey is the way i would have looked for you if i was sane and drug free i'm sorry i was not that person for you back then i am now i'm drug and alcohol free and i try to live right these things i do i do for you this is how i would have done for you i kept doing them to show you my persistence and my love and that I will never give up. I'll never make myself vulnerable enough to not want to fight back. This is my explanation. So there she directly says, you know, it's really not a penance, but it's, it's trying to show that this is if I had been in the right, in, in the right place, in the right frame of mind and would have been free of addiction. It's how I would have taken care of you, even though given the opportunity, she didn't later on. Yeah. And I, I found that really a, an interesting letter, you know, but I also felt Shauna's response was like, whatever, you know, I think Shauna just didn't, it took her a while to come to, to, you know, be able to read that without jaded eyes. But, but yeah, I was like, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, I'm sorry. But you can see that, you know, Lissa is driven from, um, something deep within her, within her psyche. Um, for these searches. And there is a quote in the book that I really loved. It said, the land would reveal what it wanted to us. The point was not to force the land to give up the body, but to be there when it did. And I think that that reflects on Lissa's um, spirituality, guiding her search in sort of a faith in her connection to herself and the landscape. Uh, whereas the white inspector um was not able to find there's a, another person that goes missing. I think uh, she finds this person in the lake, I believe. And the white inspector asks her, how did you, how did you find this person? He has no idea. Um, you know, and she, she is basically like, you wouldn't understand. Like it was my intuition basically. Yeah. This, this is an interesting character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh We'll take a brief break here and be right back to continue our discussion of Murdoch's Yellow Bird. Book Chatter is sponsored by the Friends of the Longmont Public Library. Enjoy our podcast? Then sign up for our new monthly newsletter. In it, we'll share more info about our latest pick and suggest other titles to read. You'll get insights into Book Chatter episodes, things you won't hear in the podcasts. And we'll make it even easier for you to share your comments and questions with us. To sign up, click the link in our program notes or on the library's website, look under Sign Up for E-Newsletters. And thanks for listening. Hey there, Book Chatter listeners. Warm weather is on its way, and you can enjoy it by visiting a Colorado State Park for free with your Longmont Library card. The library has four state park passes along with a backpack. Passes are available on a first-come, first-served basis and check out for seven days. Park Pass kits cannot be placed on hold. To check out a pass, call the library during open hours at 303-651-8476. For more information on this program and a link to Colorado State Park locations, visit the library website at longmontcolorado.gov library. Now, back to Book Chatter. And we're back. We've been discussing what drew Lissa to Casey's case and a search for missing persons in general. 
Lissa sees finding missing persons as her way of giving back to hurting families as well, having come from a very dysfunctional family herself. Denise, did you want to fill us in on a little bit of um, Lissa's fam- family background? Yes, I um, I really found it fascinating, um, This just the background on Lissa. You know, she has trouble with her mother. She has trouble with her five kids. Um, she has a troubled relationship with Jill, the mother of Casey, the, the young man that disappeared. And um, so she's got a lot of dynamic. And some of that is, you know, driven by addiction. And some of it's just driven by, I think, generations of, as we talked about, um, kind of feeling maybe disconnected, having those situations historically with the tribes. We, you know, we always have to go back to where we came from. You know, we can't fully disconnect ourselves from our experiences, from who our family is completely. And um, her kids have different reactions to to her and to their upbringing. There's a wide range of ages. And so, you know, they're growing up through different phases of her life, of her, um, whether it's the part where she's, you know, sober and working on her jobs in her education or whether she's in jail or whatever it may be. Um, her family members also, particularly her, her mom and her sister, it's interesting, um, their feelings about her being the only felon in the family. Um, they see it as such an embarrassment and a resentment that like kind of everyone else is either achieving or at least not doing anything that bad. Um, and then the the undercurrents of just that hopelessness, that lack of purpose while she's, um, especially while she's involved with drugs, the things she does and tries to um, survive through. But that gets really, I think, interestingly juxtaposed with the hope of better things to come that, you know, with the, um, the land lease contracts on the tribal lands might bring better days, at least for her, her grandmother, her family, um, her her people as a whole, but for her personally, she, she seems to be still looking for something. And, and as we talked about, it's like, she can't quite fix the relationships that, that she has with her family. So maybe there's some sort of closure looking there. It's just, um, it's hard to imagine what she grew up, um, experiencing, um, and then having, you know, being, becoming well-educated, you know, be, having a, a law degree and, um, working in the amazing, you know, fields that she did, that she could also have those lows of, um, of addiction, of disconnection to her family and her kids who seem to be like great kids too. I don't know. It's a very complex, complex character, complex story. I found the <clears throat> the whole family dynamic to be very fluid. It was amazing to me how you know, she lived with her mom, and then she'd go live with a grandma, and then she'd go live with a cousin. And <laughs> it was um, for 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 a person who's grown up with kind of the European idea of family. Um, you know, you it's your family. It, it's it's a small group, and you probably don't live near your grandparents or your cousins. Um, and the way that she just jumped around was kind of interesting. And uh, I I found something she talked about um, with her favorite uncle. And 
was it Chucky? What was his name? Yes, Chucky. Uncle Chucky. Um, you know, her family was brilliant. Her mother was brilliant. Um, Chucky was brilliant. But she liked Chucky the best because he showed his pain. Um, and it, it killed him, sadly. Um, but I think she felt that her mother and some other people kind of hid behind their degrees and their intelligence. And Chucky didn't. You know, Chucky showed the trauma that his his family, his tribe, his people, um, and, and Lisa respected that. You know, she respected honesty. And, and, I, and I found it interesting how the trauma that Jill had um, from losing her son and not knowing where he was or what was going on, she connected with Jill like that. And, and Jill was family for a while. Um, Jill really annoyed Lissa. She felt that, that Jill was playing the victim and trying to get attention. Right. I, I really like what you said when you, you're using the word trauma, because, you know, Lissa talks about, you know, circumstances with ex-husbands and stuff where there actually was physical trauma. You know, there was blood and broken bones and that kind of thing. And, and even, you know, physical traumas that happened on the reservation. But there is also that trauma that can be created within a family or that a person can create that affects the rest of the family. But it's a, it's a different kind. And I think, um, like you said, they can either choose to kind of bottle it up or put it aside or um, work through it. But Lissa herself has so much trauma, but she's not the only one. The whole family is really individually dealing with that. And then, of course, as a family having to. So I think trauma is really a great operative yeah, word. Yeah, and, you know, Lisso is definitely not a perfect person. She's extremely complex. Um, some of her actions, I think some of us find questionable, like when she um, gave up her, her boys for foster care um, so that she could work. You know, it's hard to relate to that. Um there was one part that really stood out for me that I don't think I could ever um, like Lissa, you know, if I ever met her in person, where she's talking to her young boys about, we can either go to foster care or I can like kill you, I can kill you and then kill me. And, and Shauna overhears that and, you know, you know, intervenes. But that I, I read that and I had to put the book down and just I can't even fathom as a mother myself having that conversation or that thought process. Um, she, I, I didn't really like Lissa. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. I, I think she did some really terrible things. She tried to make up for it, yes. Um, and she did do some good things eventually, trying to, you know, help her people, um, you know, that go missing and human trafficking in her in her community. But man, I'm sorry, that's, that's the lowest of the low to me when you're talking to your six and eight year old about how she's gonna kill them and then commit suicide. I, what? I mean, yeah, I think that we need to look at it in a in terms of, you know, a complete context. And yes, it is it is so egregious and awful. It's hard to um engage with it, but on the other hand, I mean, I think that you want to look at that and in the context of um, you know, a couple of I think her children were abused at the hands of foster parents. They talk about toilet water, um I believe and, you know, violent injuries um, sustained. So I think, 
you know, yes, this is a very complex issue and we are going to be talking more about the intergenerational trauma um, to come. Um, but I do think that we need to just remember that we are, you know, we're looking in on this through this journalist. Um, and uh, these endemic issues to the reservation can be can be tough to examine. But I'm, you know, I'm really thankful that I, I did read this book Um and it helps us to, I think, have more empathy and a greater understanding for uh, what folks have suffered. Um, and, you know, I think that was really what, you know, the complexity of Lissa as a person um, is, I think, what has gifted her with her uh, talent at finding missing persons. Murdoch writes, Lissa had long walked the line that separated cop from criminal. She believed in this line and in its thinness. She believed that everyone had inside themselves the capacity for evil and for good. And when you look at her talents and what she has brought to her people in terms of finding missing persons, um, and she does this work unpaid, by the way, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing and there's another inspector who puts her down, a white inspector, um, that calls her a cop wannabe who forms theories based on theories without any real knowledge of how bad guys work. And Lissa, Lissa says to that, you know, they're so set on labeling people. I, I am the bad guy. They put this veil between themselves and what they project to believe is a bad guy. And I think that, you know, that right there is really at the crux of how Lissa can encompass both worlds, right, of the bad guy and the good guy at once, and maybe to have a little bit more uh, ability to understand that darker side to be able to solve these crimes. Sometimes it's those life experiences, you know, it's the um, the street smarts, so to, so to speak. It's um, what you learned the hard way, those hard knocks. And I feel like Lisa's juxtaposition of um, being well-educated, having a college degree, and, and um, working in law, right? And she was, you know, she wasn't someone who was a high school dropout. She wasn't someone who, you know, just didn't care, or whatever. She was, she, you know, she came from, a, like we said, a long line of educated people, women specifically. Um, so she goes from that to, you know, drug addiction, having a criminal record, being in jail, um, having all of these low experiences um, and working just regular blue collar jobs. And um, I, I think it really gave her that dual insight. She knows how the law works. She knows how justice works. And I think she had to have had some kind of real passion even years before for justice, which may go back to, you know, her, her people's heritage and experiences as well. Um, so on the one hand, she's got that, right? So she's, she's educated in how the law works and what it is, at least in, um, the world outside of the reservation. But she also has, you know, these experiences of being a criminal and knowing how criminals think and what they do and the tactics they use and how they lie. Um, because that's who, because that's who she was. And so she's she's got a foot in each world, which I think it you know put her in that perfect position to work both sides, 
to, you know, kind of bring both sides together, bring the crime, the missing person together with, um, with the justice that needed to happen. And it was unique for her because she, like you said, she, she lived in the, in, in the big cities, but she also is very familiar with the reservation and how things work there too. Well, to add to that, Denise, um, I think she, she told Jill that she was the best person suited to find Casey because, because yes. she was part of the tribe. You know, exactly. she could have a, a foot in both of these worlds where Jill couldn't. Yes. She's a, she's a hell of a compelling character. <laughs> she is for sure. So to talk more about the, um, the intergenerational trauma um, passed down through generations, uh, Murdoch actually starts to write about some scientific evidence uh, that can explain this kind of trauma, and it is um, epigenetics. So studies have shown that trauma and stress cause a body to produce hormones that alter the way our genes are expressed, turning these genes on and off, and that changes to our DNA might be passed from generation to generation. Yeah. And there was a quote um, from Chucky, the favorite uncle here, and he does talk about epigenetics and that uh, our fates could be determined by the generations before us. And he wonders if, quote, there is no such thing as innocence at birth. Violence, like milk, is passed from grandmother to mother to son, end quote. Yeah, man, that was really fascinating. That kind of came out of left field. Um she just tantalized you with that little bit of that information. And I, I definitely am interested in reading more about that. Uh, in the book, it said that many people on the reservation believe that the oil boom is just another layer in the tribe's traumatic history. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And it is very interesting that, um, you know, this story is not told by Lissa. It is not, in fact, told by any member of the, the um, tribe it is told by a white woman, um, Murdoch, and we are having a larger cultural discussion about uh, what we call own voices. So it is, are you telling the story from um, from the, the perspective of someone that's lived that story, right? And so before we close this discussion, I'd like to touch on the presence of the author, Sierra Crane Murdoch, in this book. Murdoch makes the decision to include herself in the writing and Yellowbird is written from her perspective. Why did she make that decision? Yeah, she um, she talks about this, I think, in the author author note, um, page 370. Quote, the second decision I made was to put myself in the book. I did this for several reasons, but perhaps most important, it felt honest. Not long after I met Lissa, it occurred to me that she conscripts people into uh, her story and that I could not separate myself from her, and that in the years we would spend together, she would influence my life and I hers. I wrote Yellowbird at the collision point between two communities, one native and the other not. As a white writer drawn into the fray, I was part of the story. I agree. She was a big part of the story. Um, And just I want it noted for our readers that um, it's possible that when you read this book, if you do, um, and I hope you do, that the author is a little bit biased because as you get into the story, um, I felt, I felt personally like she became too close to Lissa. Um, at times she almost seemed infatuated by her calling herself Lissa's sidekick. You know, she's sleeping on the floor of their hotel rooms and her apartment and she's going to her family reunions. Um, I thought it was a bit strange. Um, 
But it was it was a great book. Um, I do think that authors have to be very careful about not painting Native people out to be helpless victims. And I think Murdoch did a great job at this. Um, she also showed both the good and bad sides of Lissa, Tex, and Jill, and most of the others. Um, so while it's possible that she was a bit biased, um, I think she really tried not to be. Uh, I would have been biased. Yeah, the author. <laughs> I would have. I would have yeah, been Lissa's yeah, sidekick. Yeah. It's hard not to. It's hard not yeah, to. I absolutely. Mean, she kind of almost hero worshipped her. Well, it was just she crossed a line. I mean, and she calls yeah, herself out on that. She said she bit. crossed a journalistic mm-hmm. line, but she, I think she did it for a reason. She did it knowingly. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I think Lisa. Lisa has that kind of personality that she's charismatic, and I think she just yeah, draws people in. And you're like, I don't really like you, but I like you, and <laughs> she's exciting. It. It is such a deep dive into this family and into these different personalities, right? And I think that it's hard to really keep yourself from getting tangled up in that. It is. And then you kind of forget about what the story is supposed to be about. Right. Right. It's like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a young man that was murdered and his body still hasn't been found. I mean, that's tragic. I, I feel like it was, I just, that's why I didn't feel like it was your typical true crime. Yeah. Because you don't get this in a typical true crime book. You don't. Um, right, right. I, I don't know what I it would have great. called it. It was a great book. <laughs> it's yeah. not a memoir. I don't know. Yeah, you get the story, but not the experience. And in this, you really, yeah. I think, got an experience. It was a mystery. It was history. It was true crime. It was social criticism. This it was... fascinating person. This character, this fascinating person. Yeah. It's probably my favorite book so far. Yeah, it's been my, it's been my favorite. Mm-hmm. Good job, whoever picked it out. That was me. Yeah, it starts out as a search for, you know, KC, and it becomes you know, a getting to know of this um, mm-hmm. Arikra woman, Lissa Yellowbird, and she really takes over the story. And it's just a testament to the magnetism of her character and the strength and the resilience, right, in the face of all of this intergenerational trauma. Well, thank you, Devin, Josie, and Denise, for a great discussion of Yellowbird, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country by Sierra Crane Murdoch. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. For June's Book Chatter episode, we've chosen The Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness by Cy Montgomery. Print and audio CD copies are available for checkout at the library, and the ebook and downloadable audio versions can be borrowed online from the Front Range Downloadable Library. We'd love to hear from you. So, read the book and then join the conversation. Submit your comments and questions online by email or voicemail. You'll find the details on how to do this on our program notes. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to Book Chatter. See you in June for our next episode of Book Chatter, the book club for busy people.